This is a Federal News Network podcast. For many entrepreneurs, private equity is one way to finance their establishment. But now we learn that equity owners can wind up on the hook for false claims actions against the contractor they've invested in. Here with more on a recent case, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And this is interesting because this is coming as there's more and more, I guess, venture capital coming into the federal market and as the False Claims Act is becoming a more potent weapon. So tell us about the Massachusetts case. So, Tom, this case was really the first of its kind. It was a False Claims Act case, as you said. Even though the Department of Justice didn't pick up the case, the state of Massachusetts did, which gave it some gravitas and meant that there was likely something there. And what the defendant tried to argue is, look, we're going to negotiate the size of the fine and whatever it is we have to pay back. But the whistleblower said, look, you're a small business. You're ultimately owned by this private equity firm. We're not interested in what you can pay because what you can pay is relatively little. We really want the private equity firm to be on the hook for your misdeeds for providing unqualified people because the private equity firm is the actual owner of the business. The court in this case agreed, Tom, and the private equity firm had to pay out over $20 million in fines and restitution. You can bet that on top of that, there were significant lawyer fees. And now we understand that, look, while you're doing your due diligence of a company as a private equity firm, if you're thinking of investing or buying a government contractor, your due diligence has to include things like contract compliance. So often I find that newer companies just getting into the market really may not have the best idea of contract compliance. Private equity people are justifiably thinking about what type of return they get. But the fact is your return can be greatly diminished if you don't do your due diligence on compliance. Or it can be wiped out, it sounds like, in this case. In this case. (laughs) We're talking about South Bay Mental Health Centers in Massachusetts. And what is it they did wrong that got them into hot water in the first place? Tom, South Bay was providing health care services in the state of Massachusetts. And the allegation was that they were providing unqualified, unlicensed therapists, uh, psychologists, Uh, mental health treatment professionals that didn't have the right uh, credentials and that therefore those people were not uh, allowed and should not have been providing services and that because they were providing those services and overcharging for them, the state of Massachusetts and the federal government as well were at a disadvantage. Their fraud was being committed by the company and extensive investigation. That's exactly what the court found. I'm surprised that this actually went to trial. So many of these things don't. But uh, the phase that really went to trial again was the one that centered on this theory that the private equity owner can be held culpable for the mistakes of the company it owns. I suspect this is not the last time we'll see this, Tom. I think we'll see it again and again. We have this precedent, but it's really only up in Massachusetts right now. However, I would imagine there are plaintiff bar attorneys all over the country We're watching this closely. Yeah, I'm wondering, just because of the pandemic or whatever, were they offering licensed services from people out of state who were therefore not licensed in Massachusetts? Court proceedings don't go into that degree of detail, but what the allegation is, is that there were unqualified people providing services that they shouldn't have been qualifying and that the state and federal government were 
harmed as a result. The owner is HIG Capital. Maybe it stands for hand in gobs of cash <laughs> in this case. In that case, we're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And I wanted to also ask you about this new development that's starting to be something contractors really need to pay attention to as well. And that is the fact that your greenhouse gas emissions will be a ranking factor in whether you get federal contracts regardless of what the contract is all about. Tom, at the beginning of the Biden administration, a whole series of social mandates came out about what the administration wanted to do in terms of climate change, among other things. So the whole idea that greenhouse gas emissions could count somewhere in government acquisition was established pretty early on. What I thought was surprising about this most recent development is just how you put it possibility and probability of putting greenhouse gas emission requirements and preferences in place for the award of government contracts. And we're talking about contracts of all types here. Most people, Tom, when they originally heard about the greenhouse gas emissions requirement, they were thinking buildings, land, things that the government owns or occupies. And certainly that's going to be part of it. But that's not the only part of it. What's being made clear, there are two FAR clauses that are making their way through the regulatory process right now, and each of them could have an impact on any type of contractor that sells to the government. I would imagine your typical services firm probably doesn't have any idea what their carbon footprint is. They're in lease space, typically in buildings they may not own. They probably never asked the landlord the question, you know, what what's our carbon footprint here? Uh, so it's something that Contractors are potentially going to have to spend money on to get a number and have evaluated and then come up with a mitigation plan in order to show that they are meeting uh, the climate change mandates uh, of the second of these two FAR proposals that are making their way through. It's an extra cost for companies. We didn't say it wasn't coming. We said it was coming. Uh, It's coming much sooner now. Uh, So as we go into FY22, this could be another regulatory burden, another requirement the contractors find themselves saddled with in order to do business with the government. You can almost imagine a whistleblower getting a hold of utility bills or looking at some activity the company does and saying, hey, they said they only use 10,000 BTUs a month or whatever it is. And here's evidence showing they're doing 12,000 BTUs a month. Or Or their senior executives don't carpool. You know, could be taken to any extreme here, Tom. Uh, And you're saying, you know, this is something that could put you at a competitive disadvantage for a contract award. Uh, One evaluation factor. But look, we've seen contracting officers really going forward with other administration priorities and implementing them quickly. There's no reason to think they won't do the same with this. All of a sudden, contractors are going to have to figure out what this means for them, whether you're selling real estate, professional services, or products. Now, are these rules in proposed form on the register that people can comment on, or are we just expecting the draft rules at this point? Well, there was an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, Tom, really the initial step for the first one of these, the one that says, we're considering using your greenhouse gas emissions score, whatever that means, as a factor for award. And the second one that's a little bit further behind, but in the draft stage, would actually evaluate you based on your mitigation plan. 
So it's not just that you have to know what your score is, unless it's zero, then you have to come up with a mitigation plan on how to uh, keep yourself more green. I would expect these clauses to come out in either proposed or interim form. The first one by the end of the calendar year, Tom, and maybe both. It's hard to see how this would apply to, say, a professional services contractor because all they're offering is labor hours in effect. And so what are you going to say? All my people eat and breathe, and therefore they are contributing to carbon. Right. Or, you know, what's the, we maintain two floors in an office building in Tyson's Corner. What percentage of the entire building's emissions are those two floors? And by the way, it's not our building. What control do we really have over reducing the emission standard for that building? Just show up to your negotiations in a cardigan sweater. And the old timers will remember that reference. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys, clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but... Don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.